Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. All right, as we were talking about, we're doing the great opportunity. And this is our uh, fourth week in this. So we're going to look at uh, reaching the next generation. So if you're willing and able, why don't you stand? And we will read uh, some selected uh, scripture together. Psalm 78. We will not hide them from their children. But tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Psalm 145. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I have commanded you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk to them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be a frontlet on between, between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Jesus said, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. He laid his hands on them, and they went away. And then from John chapter 20, Jesus has been crucified. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked for the, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... And then Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side and said, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This is God's word. Every part of it is true. And he gives it to us because he loves us. Amen. You may be seated. So the great opportunity, it's a time of corporate renewal. It's a time where we get some mission clarity. It's a time where we huddle together as a church family and say, this is what we are going to be about. We make our mission clear. Let me show you a picture. These two folks, uh, this is a husband and wife, right on the front lines of the pandemic. What are they doing here? What they're doing here is they're huddling together and they're saying, this is our mission clarity moment. And you know what they're saying to each other? They say it every time, every day, but when they get to work in the morning. They tell each other, I love you. And they say, we are on a mission to risk our lives for the sake of others. Dwight Eisenhower said this, we succeed only as we identify in life or in war or anything else 
a single overriding objective and make all other considerations bend to that one objective. There was a Christian doctor, and uh, he was going to be a missionary. And the missions agency told him, you've got to go over there for several months all by yourself, without your wife, without your kids. You've got to scatter it out. You've got to test it out. And so he gathered his kids together, his five kids, and he told his kids, he says, Dad's going to be gone away for a number of months. I'm sorry that I have to be gone. I'm going to miss uh, your baseball games. I'm going to miss your eighth grade graduation, your swim meets. I'm not going to be there after school like I am sometimes to pick you up. I just want to apologize to you kids for what this is going to cost you with me being gone. And then his seven-year-old daughter said this, Daddy, you said that God called you to do this. Why are you apologizing to us? I can think of something worse than a daddy who is not here. And that's a daddy who is disobedient, who does not understand his mission. David Cassidy is a pastor in our denomination. And this is what he says. He says, God's mission in his church has always been clear that no matter what, give glory to God in worship, give love to one another in community, give life to the world through the gospel and service, and give faith to the next generation. And so we got a Christian school. We've got Camp Seven Rivers. We've got children's ministry. We've got uh, weekend worship every weekend. Getting the next generation to Jesus. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, let's look at this together. Next generation, grace and truth. First truth. In John chapter 1, John writes that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. We must teach the next generation God's truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. So what does God instruct parents to do? To bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the truth. That God wants children raised in an environment that is saturated in biblical truth. Where they have taught God's word and, and see everything in light of his word. Yet... We live in a culture right now where every voice of culture is telling you there's no such thing as truth. There's no such thing as absolute truth. That truth is just relative. You see, prior to the Enlightenment, faith and truth were tightly woven together in the social fabric of the world. But then during the Enlightenment, the leading thinkers decided we don't need God anymore. And so faith and truth were ripped apart. So coming down to today, you get to choose your own version of truth. You can choose your own gender. You can choose your own sexual orientation. You can choose your own values. There's no such thing as truth. There's no design. And if somebody doesn't like your version of your truth that you pick, 
well, then you just cancel them right out of your life because nobody can challenge your version of truth. You think about all the tribalism and the division that we've seen in our country. It is because we have no unifying truth, no unifying beauty. And this kind of thinking has taken over our brains in regards to truth. There's a Christian high school in Atlanta, and the Bible teacher walked into the classroom, and he drew a heart on one side of the board, and then he drew a brain on the other side of the board, and he put a thick line down between the brain and the heart, and he told the class, he said, with your heart, that's what you do religion with, but with your brain, that's what you do serious thinking with, like science. Even math is no longer seen as true truth. The dominant philosophy of math treats it as a social construction, like a baseball game. Three strikes and you're out. It's just an arbitrary rule. It's just the way you play the game. It's not true or false. So math is now regarded as just the way you play the game, which means really ultimately there's no wrong answers. So this high school student in New Mexico, his teacher called him a bigot because he insisted that a math answer was true, and it was true for everyone all the time, that two plus two equals four is a universal truth, an absolute truth. God says we are to love him with all of our hearts and with all of our minds to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We want our children to be steeped in Scripture, like a tea bag in hot water where it permeates all of their thinking. It permeates their habits, their imaginations, their callings. They see all of life through a biblical worldview. You see, biblical Christianity is not just information on how to be reconciled with God. It is truth about the whole of reality. It is coming to understand that God is our creator and that everything that is true springs from his mind. But many Christians, they lack a sense and understanding that that Christianity functions as an overarching system of truth that applies to politics and history and art and anthropology. And we are losing lots of young people because they're being told that the religious belief is just their personal opinion. And it fits in this category over here called religious belief, but that has nothing to do with the rest of the world and how it works. Francis Schaeffer beautifully put, Christianity is not a series of truths in the plural but rather truth spelled with a capital T. Truth about total reality, not just about religious things. Biblical Christianity is truth concerning total reality and the intellectual holding of that total truth and then living in light of that truth. This young man by the name of Wyatt Norman Wyatt grew up here. He grew up going to our school. This past November, 
Wyatt was tragically killed in a car accident. We had the service right here in this room. And his mother, before the funeral, was going through his backpack, his college backpack. And she pulled out his math spiral for a class he was taking. And she found this. The page on the left is part of his math work, and that represents one of five pages where he is working out the solution to one problem. <laughs> one problem. And then the next page on the right, you can see he, he finishes the problem, and then he writes something in his math spiral. Here's what he wrote. Holy Lord, it works. God, you are brilliant. I give you my uttermost praise. Who can know your mind? Is this the closest sliver I will get? Then his mom said this. Wyatt believed that math spoke of God. And the magnificent order with which he designed and sustains an infinite universe. He writes a prayer to God in his college math spiral. Who does that? A young man who learned truth, total truth. A young man who understood that in Christ is all the wisdom and treasures of knowledge. Beautiful. We gotta give our kids truth. We also gotta give them grace. Jesus is full of both. You know, my dad was, a, uh, was an airline pilot, so I flew a lot. But every time I get on an airplane, it still baffles me because they always tell you something that's completely counterintuitive. They say, in case of an emergency, if you're traveling with a small child and the oxygen mask come down, you take the oxygen mask and you put it on yourself, the adult, first before you put it on the child. This is completely counterintuitive. That in an emergency, a life-threatening situation, you, the adult, you, the parent, are going to take care of yourself first? That's not how you rescue the child first. It's completely counterintuitive. But that's exactly what the gospel says. That the adults must breathe in grace first. That the adults must know that we are loved sinners first before we can give the oxygen of the gospel to the next generation. Jesus says, do not hinder the little children from coming to me. So what hinders little children from coming to him? You know, it says there's 83% of children raised in Christian homes abandon their faith. So what is hindering them? What is preventing them? Religion. Self-righteousness. Fake adults who act like they have it all together, who compartmentalize their faith. Adults who are trying so hard to validate themselves with the religious performance and goodness. 
Christian adults who act like they're superior to non-Christians. You know, Jesus called the religious leaders whitewashed tombs. They're all clean and pretty and, and good on the outside, and they have a great reputation in the community, and they have a, they're always in church, and they're always doing religious stuff, but inside, they're dead, rotting bones, whitewashed tombs. They're always holding a parade in their honor, but at home, they're mean, they're angry. You know, our kids are watching us. They're wondering, does Christianity really change anyone? You know, Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son. You know, it's the story of, of two boys, right? So why does the younger brother leave the family? Why is he so desperate to get away from home and get his inheritance and go? Why is it? It's because of the older brother. It's because he's so self-righteous. Who wants to live with Mr. Always Right? Who wants to live with Mr. Boasting and Bragging? Paul says this in 1 Timothy. He says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You see what Paul's saying? He says, he says I'm going to be an example. <laughs> I'm going to be an example of the foremost sinner getting grace. I'm going to be a billboard of God's amazing grace for a wretch. At Seven Rivers, we say that pastors and elders and small group leaders and ministry leaders and parents, anyone who is leading anybody needs to be experiencing gospel transformation. That leaders in Christ's church are not people who just manage their life the best. They're not the ones who just look good. They're not the ones who sin the least, but they're the ones who repent the most. They're the ones that when the kids look at us, they go, they've got an oxygen mask on. They need grace. Brandon and I, uh, we just taught a class on uh, the seven deadly sins. We just finished up a couple weeks ago. And I thought, at first I was excited about it, but then I thought, oh, great. I gotta look at seven deadly sins. How many of these are going to, like, be mine? So, you know, I was doing okay, you know, two or three, you know, and uh, at least I thought, well, I'm not all seven. Then we got to the last class, and it was on, it was on anger. And God just cut me open. I realize that I, I, I'm an, I have an anger problem. I'm an angry person. I realize I was not trusting God with what is going on in my oldest daughter's life. And I was angry at God and it was coming out sideways at her. You know, little jabs, little comments, you know, over-parenting. And so I called her. And I, and I, and I, I apologized to her, and I, and I repented to her. I mean, she had done nothing wrong. It was me. 
Lisa was a senior in high school. And she had three months until she graduated. Yet, there she was before me and a few other leaders in the church professing faith in Christ and joining Seven Rivers. But I asked her, I said, you know, I'm a bit puzzled. Why are you joining the church now? I mean, you've got three months till you graduate. You're going to college, you're probably never coming back here. I said, this is great, but why now? And she said, Mr. Jones, it's because of my dad. My dad has gotten the gospel. My whole life we've come to this church, but the coin has finally dropped for him. And I know it's real because he repented to me about his arrogance and his self-righteousness. He clearly has shown me that he needs Jesus. And so the coin has dropped for me too. I understood now that if my father needs Jesus for his broken story, well then I want Jesus too. Giving the gospel to the next generation means leaders, parents, the whole congregation breathes in the gospel first so that our kids see us with our oxygen mask on in the emergencies of life, of our sin and our suffering. Listen, we don't want to just go through the motions. We want the gospel to really change us. John Owen writes this, a person who understands the evil in his own heart is the only person who is useful, fruitful, and solid in his beliefs and obedience. Others delude themselves and thus upset families, churches, and all other relationships. We've got to give our kids truth and grace. Second, the next generation reaching them is covenant community. In Deuteronomy, we read, Hero Israel. You shall diligently teach your children. It's not just parents. It's covenant community, one generation to the next. This is corporate. This is what we just did in baptism. These are the things that Ray just was talking about. Baptism is not just a wonderful ceremony. I mean, the kids are adorable. How do you follow that act, right? But it's not just a beautiful ceremony that parents want this event. It's, it's entrance into the covenant community. I mean, a wedding, take a wedding. Weddings are, are amazing, a beautiful wedding. But what is a wedding an entry point to? Something far more grander and meaningful, marriage. And so it is with baptism. Entering the covenant community where the church congregation takes on the mission together to get our children to Jesus. And so Allie Douglas and Ranger Armstrong and Timothy and Ben and Abigail Quist and Ben and Buddy Brown and Grady and Avery and Wiley and Aubrey Lowe and Eli and Andrew and Kate Fowler and Holden and Lincoln and Ryan Griffith and Lydia and Sebastian and Isaac Brashear and Nehemiah and Hannah and Mariah and Jonathan Van and Mason Holly and Tegan and Drew and Aaron Holmberg. And I go on and on and on. This week, during, as I was working on this sermon, I just started a list. And I was writing down names of kids that grew up here who are now adults living all across the country who are following Jesus and raising their own kids in the gospel. 
And some of them were standing on this stage moments ago. And the list got so long, I just, I just, quit. I just quit doing it. I had to finish the sermon. Michael Puckett told me recently that over the last 10 months, 27 students have come to Christ in student ministry. You know what you ought to do sometime when you come to church? Before you come in the building? You ought to park your car and just walk over to the school and walk around the school and pray. Or go to the student ministry building and pray. Go down to the preschool and pray. Come in the children's wing and pray. Uh, Come up here this summer and bring food for the counselors and pray for the kids coming to camp. Why? Because they're your kids. Look at this picture. These two boys, moments after this picture was taken, they were washed out to sea in the undertow. And they would have both died had not been for the people on the beach who did this. They made a chain to rescue these boys. It was the only way it could happen. They had to come together as a community. It was too big of a task for one person or one family alone. Everybody was needed. Now, when those people went to the beach that day, what were they thinking? They were thinking the whole day at the beach was about them. They were thinking rest, relaxation. I'm on the beach. I'm going to catch some rays. I'm going to sit back and enjoy a cold drink. Ah! But when they drove home that day, what did they say? Now I know why God had us at the beach that day. Because we were going to be there to rescue those kids. Do you know why you're in this church? Did you think you were coming here for your own? No, you're here to lock arms with other believers to get the next generation to Jesus. That's why you're here. It's not to soak in the sun. There's a Yale professor by the name of Nora Ellen Groshi. She wrote a book called Everybody Here Spoke Sign Language. It was based on her research of people who lived in Martha's Vineyard from the 17th century to the early part of the 20th century. And because of hereditary deafness and geographical isolation, over 25% of the population was deaf. The entire community was divided into two groups, the hearing people and the deaf community. Now, in most societies... People who are physically handicapped have to adapt to live like those who are not handicapped. The minority has to adapt to the majority. But that's not what happened in the vineyard. During her research, she was interviewing those still living. And while she was talking to one woman, she said, what did the hearing people think of the deaf people? The woman said, we didn't think anything about them. They were just like everyone else. Well, she said there must have been lots, lots of writing of notes and deaf people having to learn how to read lips and frustration on both sides with communication that just kind of separated everyone. And she said, no, that's not what happened at all. Groshi said, how so? The woman said, well, everybody spoke sign language. 
Oh, you mean the deaf families. Those people spoke sign language. She said, no, everybody did. I did, my mom did, everybody on my street, the whole community spoke sign language. You see, what happened was the entire community had disadvantaged itself for the sake of the minority, for the sake of the weak. Instead of making the deaf people read lips, the whole hearing majority learned how to do sign language. All of the hearing people became bilingual so that the deaf people could enter into full social participation in the neighborhood, every interaction, everyone used sign language. That is what we are doing here. The covenant community. Everybody in the church is to disadvantage themselves for the mission to reach the next generation. This is why we keep talking about people who have never, ever contributed to the mission. We want you to start on the journey because we want everyone. It takes all of us. That's why it's a great opportunity to reach the next generation together. And finally, Reaching the next generation is about mission. You know, we read John chapter 20, where Jesus is dead, and the disciples are behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. They are uh, completely in paralysis. Up until the point when Jesus died, I mean, they actually thought they knew what their life was to be about. They thought they had purpose. Now Jesus is dead, the rug's been pulled out, they're devastated, they're hopeless, they're in despair, they're locked down in fear. In his book, The Weariness of Self, Dr. Alan Etherenberg explores why depression has become the most diagnosed mental disorder in the world. His conclusion is that depression is on the rise because of an increased feeling that young people have of inadequacy, arising with how people have defined their life purpose. People's measure of success is not fulfilling or they can't reach it because they've aimed their love, their wants, and their desires in the direction of something that is ultimately futile, like money, career, marriage, fame, and it's not working. And so people are being locked down in despair and depression. Madeline Levine writes this, America's newly identified at-risk group is preteens and teens from affluent, well-educated families. Despite their economic and social advantages, they experience among the highest rates of depression, substance abuse, anxiety disorders, insomnia complaints, and unhappiness of any group of children. As many as 22% of adolescent girls from financially comfortable homes suffer from clinical depression. If we're gonna reach the next generation, we have to give them a compelling mission. We have to give them a beautiful and powerful horizon to angle for. Otherwise, they will be locked down in depression and hopelessness and indulgence. And so these fearful, disoriented, directionless disciples are locked in the room and Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appears before them. 
and he, they encounter Jesus. And this is the end of the book of John. And what comes next? The book of Acts. And the church explodes in growth. Because now they have a mission. And Jesus says to them, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So when kids grow up here, we teach them about a mission. That God is going to send them out into the world. He was in uh, eighth grade. Yeah, it was about eighth grade when I met him. And uh, all the teachers uh, at our school said the same thing. They said, uh, when you talk to this kid, he didn't ever talk to you. He would just grunt. He would just huff. And, uh, you know, he kind of had long hair. And he had it down in front of his eyes all the time. And, and he was a really big kid, lots of athletic potential. But every sports team he got on, he would just quit. Until they finally convinced him to try football because he was such a big, strong, fast kid. And so he's playing football, and lo and behold, he actually starts to kind of like it because he gets to push people and grunt at them, <laughs> you know? And so he got to know the coach, and, and, and the Seven Rivers football coach led him to Christ. He was converted on the football team. But he still kind of grunted and huffed and was demanding life on his terms. And then his senior year, he went on a mission trip with his classmates. And they were working hard in Alabama, rebuilding homes that had been destroyed by tornadoes. And, and then after the missions trip, the class came back, and the class took a class trip to Europe. And so they're flying back on the plane from Europe. And he's sitting across the aisle from a teacher. And the teacher gets up the nerve to talk to this big kid and says, so how did you enjoy the trip to Europe? And she's kind of expecting him to grunt at her and huff. And she said he spoke with such clarity and passion. And he said this, the trip to Europe was great. I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed my classmates. But I have to say, the missions trip changed my life. I understand now that if I make life all about me, I will lose my way. Give me a missions trip over vacation every George Bernard Shaw writes this. This is the true joy of life, being used up for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one, being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clot of ailments and grievances, complaining that the world does not devote itself to making you happy, to have a compelling mission set our kids out when they leave this community that the church is the hope of the world and that they are going to lean in to this objective to reach the next generation. I've been here 20 years. This is one of the main reasons I've never left. Is because this church has been committed to this vision. I never get tired of it. Again, Dwight Eisenhower, we succeed only as we identify in life or in war or in anything else a single 
overriding objective and make all other considerations bend to that one objective. So church family, what is the great opportunity? It is to embrace the mission and to give the mission to the next generation. Are you in? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Father, we don't always do this well, but we would ask that you would please help us to get the power of the gospel to our kids. We get distracted with so many things, but Father, would you help us together to lean in, to capture the affections of our children, that they might know you, love you, and live on mission long after we're gone. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org. Thank you.